Welcome to the EdTech Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. Today we're doing something a little different. We're doing a This Week in EdTech. And to start it off, we're going to do a recap of ISTE, which was this week in Chicago. I had a chance to visit. It was a wonderful experience. And today as our guest, we have Dr. Edward C., who's the Director of Strategy at Nui Tech and also runs a YouTube channel called Ed on EdTech, which is a great play on the name. And we're both going to be giving a little recap of what we saw at ISTE, some of the trends, and some of the specific technology that we really think is showcasing the movement in the industry. So, Ed, how you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Daniel. No, absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Um, you know, I'm excited to try this more topical style of podcast and have a really authentic conversation about some of these trends in ed tech. Um, you know, I, I'm excited. For sure. You know, me personally, I grew up with a lot of really fabulous educators that really made me value my education. And so, not going to lie, this was my first big conference that I've been to, and it just happened to be one of the biggest conferences in ed tech, if not the biggest. So it uh, it was quite overwhelming in a great way. It was just so cool to see all these people who were passionate about what they were doing. Well, ISTE is the largest ed tech conference in North America. I think this year they said that they had 18,000 educators attending. And if you include like the industry folks, it's easy into the 20, 22, 23,000. Uh, so it's just like, it's a huge conference and it was really great uh, to see like that many people being involved, engaged. So it was really a, a quite amazing kind of at the, like, if you just think about the scale, the scale of the conference was quite amazing. Agreed. Agreed. It was, it was pretty incredible. So let's just dive right into it and do some recap. So I think some of the big stuff that was at ISTE this year included hitting on digital citizenship. Uh, I think that is something that's really been been a focus in the ed tech industry now for a while. And people are starting to realize that with the advent of so much social media and with a generation that has grown up knowing only social media, it's so important to be teaching people how, how to use it properly, how to develop um, a personality on there, a, you know, be a a contributing citizen, not only in society, but on a digital level as well. Certainly one trend that we're seeing, especially this year from technology perspective, is the the knowledge that technology can also be used for evil in addition to good. Uh, if we take a look at like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, if we look at, you know, the uh, the Elsagate videos, we're starting to get a good understanding of things that computers are not good at. This type of critical thinking, should we be showing this? Um, is it real? Is, is this a real, is, is this a real piece of news? We're starting to get to the point where, you know, the computers just can't tell. They just know that a lot of people are watching this video. They don't know if it's necessarily a, a good thing. Uh, so I think it was uh, one of the former uh, CEOs of Twitter that said like, you know, there's no reason, there's this kind of progressive extremism, you know, when it comes to watching videos. So, for example, if you watch a video about vegetarianism, it's likely to give you a video about veganism. And so the computer algorithms don't actually know what is good to be showing to people. They just know that a lot of people are watching it. And, you know, I think the comment was like, you know, if you see a kind of car accident on the side of the road, like you look, everybody looks. And, and it's the same way with technology. 
except the technology thinks that, well, as a result, people want to see car accidents. And as a result, it wants to give them more of them. And so this is the one of the uh, unfortunate consequences, but something that we're learning about technology. And so it's giving uh, schools, especially when it comes to digital citizenship, an opportunity to think about how we can uh, develop the types of critical thinking skills that are really needed to to uh, really suss out what is real, what is fake, uh, and you know how we should actually do our, our research, for example, for looking at news. Yeah, and I feel like it's so essential with such a young audience that finds so much of their news and their content on social media where I feel like sometimes it's even harder to verify whether something is true or not because you just see... 16,000 retweets, 40,000 favorites, and that just has a lot of validation to it. That looks like, okay, people agree with this, people think this is truthful. It it might be completely fake. It might be that people are retweeting it because it's fake, and you know it's part of the entertainment value. But someone who's really young and, and hasn't developed a knowledge of what is truthful, what is not so truthful on the internet, see that and they may not know the difference. And so, yeah, I agree. It's starting to become really crucial to implement that learning for students at, at a really young age. Yeah, that reminds me of the the talk by uh, Sue Gardner from the Wikimedia Foundation, uh, where she said that this is one of the, the trends, especially when it came to, well, just in general, news organizations is they because of what's happening with news, a lot of people are moving to kind of independent news, into vlogs. So the actual large news organizations aren't nearly the strength. They're like half the strength uh, that they used to be from 10 years ago. So even the large news organizations could be involved in uh, stories that are not fully vetted, not, not fully tested. So people don't know where to look. And really what they've found, especially online with sources, is that uh They've done some tests and they found that certain types of emotion really generate a lot of responses, a lot of retweets, a lot of comments. And, and that emotion is anger. So a lot of the, the news is kind of designed around getting people angry. Uh, and so it's kind of working off of some of what we know, at least in the in the world of psychology. Right, right. It's very similar to what you said about the car wreck. You know, that that's not quite anger, but it's the mm -hmm. it's the the event level of it. You know, when something angers you, it stirs you up, it's got to have a certain level of meaning to you. And if, uh, you know, if it encapsulates your attention and gets you invested in a negative way, then then yeah, it, it's going to be harder for you to discern whether or not it was real in the first place. Right. So there was one booth that I saw at ISD that I think is doing a really good job of hitting two birds with one stone, and they were called Newzella. And what they were doing was taking, um, they were taking articles out on the internet, yep. and you know, deciphering which ones were quality, which ones weren't, and obviously keeping the quality ones, which was going to be you know a accurate reporting, whether it's political or it might be scientific or it might just be pop culture pieces. It doesn't even have to be hard news. And they were designing an algorithm to move the reading level mm -hmm. depending on who was actually reading. So you could have the same article at a first or second grade level yep. being read at the same time as someone who's at a fourth or fifth grade level, and they, they may not even know the difference. It's adapted to each student by the teacher. And I think that's such an interesting way to not only introduce 
quality reporting, journalism, and um, you know factual news and information, as well as getting reading fluency down to a more efficient but um, effective process. Yeah, Newzella was released. Uh, I, I think it was. It's been around for a while. Uh, I think 2012 is when they started. And I like the idea of taking news articles and just making them accessible because to a certain extent, that's some of the best ways of building that critical thinking skill is having examples in the real world. So so and so, you know, did these things and showing those consequences, because especially in in primary uh, where maybe they, they don't have quite the abstract thinking skills built out. There's an opportunity to talk about actions and reactions. This person did the following actions, and then they, they have these consequences as a good way of uh, teaching people that, that kind of real-world skill. And so that, that was actually my recommendation. I remember doing in a, in a video on the Ed on Ed Tech channel, uh, just suggesting that uh, parents can do really well by talking about real-world examples and some of the consequences. Like we could talk about the... Uh, the Logan Paul, um, you know, uh, suicide force video, and we can talk about the reactions of people afterwards and how they felt about it would be a good way of explaining that concept. So that to a certain extent, following the news is a is a is a good way of building that critical thinking skill that we need for digital citizenship. And that's that's such an interesting way to look at it um, is is making that stuff accessible for a younger audience. Um, because, yeah, I, I don't think there are a lot of news channels out there that even think, oh, let's try to cater our content, our news content to a young audience. Because I, I don't think people have fully grasped that it's important for a young audience to be up to date with current events. And so finding a way to not only do that, but improve reading fluency just in general, getting students up you know, up to the standard where they need to be to absorb content at a critical level is is so important. One of the the things I've also been thinking about is I like that they're trying to cover uh, reading levels. Uh, reading itself has has generally found to like there's there's some difficulty reading, especially at the really younger ages. They're just not fully at that point yet. It takes time to build that skill. And so there's been quite a bit of work with respect to uh, video and using voice for for input that is kind of really starting to to um, to be a trend and in the industry, uh, especially for younger age learning, where they might not feel comfortable writing, uh, but they may be comfortable talking to somebody else. So I think that especially when it comes to the what we call the natural user interface, there's a lot of opportunities for that use in the younger ages, where they may not have built the skill to read yet, but they can start interacting with devices kind of preliterate. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, so an another one of the big topics that I wanted to talk about today um, was one of the overarching themes that I saw at ISTE, and I know you had a chance to sit down with some of these people, which sounds really, really cool. But we got to hear from Andy Weir, from Katie Martin, and from Michael Cohen at the keynote on Tuesday. And they really talked about enabling creativity in a lot of different ways and sort of reimagining what it means to gain a creative education. Um, so I know you got to sit down with them on a more personal level. What kind of things did you gain from that interview? Um, you know, what, what trends did you see them talk on? 
it was really inspiring to to hear from so many thought leaders in in the education well not just the education but also the the writing the science fiction space uh, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed when it comes to creativity or trying to like one of the the big challenges has always been kind of engagement or motivating students and so getting students to the point where they want to create that they're motivated to do it on their own is often one of the the big hurdles and i felt that science fiction does a really great job of covering that because it's covering some topics that are certainly of interest they see it in the movies you know maybe they want to understand a little bit more of the science but there's also that notion of mysteries like i think andy weir was saying even in his books uh, inside the the Martian, he's, he builds in a little bit of problem solving. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know how I would solve this problem. And they, they constantly have to, to get toward that solution. And so having a well-framed or well-motivated problem is often like a really key aspect of creativity. And uh, having a chance to speak with uh, tech rabbi Michael Cohen, uh, he kind of reiterated that a, a little bit as well, just saying, not giving them kind of a, a blank space or a, like an empty template, but giving them some level of scaffold that makes it a lot easier for them to get into the creative process. Maybe they don't feel, and this is a, a challenge often with students, is they, they may not have the confidence to create. Maybe they're just starting to, to build their own skills, but creating an environment where they can feel that they can fail, they can try different things, and like just being successful the first time is not a requirement, I think is really, really important. Yeah, I, I really like what you said about how problem solving uh, helps stir creativity. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't particularly think about. Um, I think a lot of times in education, creativity gets lumped together with just the arts and the idea of, okay, you have free creative time. Go ahead and be creative. And just telling someone to be creative, a lot of students don't learn like that. A lot of students don't have that that drive or they don't know that they can have that drive. You know, they, they don't feel confident enough, like you said, to just be creative or just come up with something. But helping them lay out problem-solving skills and seeing, okay, we have this big problem in, I don't know, it could be math, it could be science, it could be literature, history, anything, and asking them, how would you solve this in a different way? Or how would you get around this obstacle is such a perfect way to start encouraging creativity in students because to them it'll just feel like they're solving the problem. But then by the end of it, you'll say, look what you just did. You just came up with a creative original solution to something. You know, you are a creative. And I think that's so important. And, and that feedback loop is so important as well. I think what you mentioned just at the end there kind of really made me think that it's celebrating the little things that um, that students do along the way as part of the process, not celebrating, say, just the final product, but it's like, hey, you've made really good, great progress on this problem, or you've, you've made really great progress on this initial part of the drawing. I mean, those are the kinds of things that, that make the, a huge difference. And the, the story for me was just uh, from Andy Weir was just like how he wrote The, the Martian. Um, he had this kind of community of 3,000 geeks uh, he described it as like people just like him who would <laughs> right. give him feedback on every chapter of his book. And as a result, you know, with all that feedback, all that validation, it just kept him going. 
you know, he didn't have a full publisher at that time, but having all of these people giving feedback and all of these people wanting to know where things were going to go and uh, correcting the science part, you know, meant that he could just keep on writing and then kind of evolve or evolve the script along the way. And I feel that like, that's really more a reality of the creative process. Like people think, oh, you just, you know, sit down and you create this masterpiece. Uh, but no, it, it's this kind of constant iteration. It's this constant process and getting students to see that it actually is really messy to begin with, but then you kind of grow from there. It's just uh, such an important part of the process. Uh, it actually reminds me, like I, I had a chance to meet with a, uh, like kind of a, uh, like a maker, uh, a, a teacher who was very involved with a makerspace, Greg Kent. And he kind of said, like, it's really for him creating that little environment, you know, that that space where he can give the feedback to the students of the, the project that they're, they're working on and allow them to try things, you know, to see if it works, if it doesn't work, provide them some tutorials and help them kind of learn along the way. Uh, and this is one of the things I love about creative creativity and problem solving is that there is that just in time learning. And with the way the technology is these days, it's kind of very well suited for just-in-time learning. And so that's kind of a, a trend that we're, we're definitely seeing in our industry as well. And, you know, it's it like you said, it's creating that space where students feel comfortable failing and that failing is part of the process. But with what you said, I also feel like being creative is a collaborative process. I mean, you can see it with Andy Weir's novel, right? He had... A community that was supporting him and was giving him feedback and helped him be more creative. And I think that's really important. It, it not only hits on the fact that creativity takes more than one mind and that it's okay to not be able to do everything yourself. You know, hearing from someone like Andy Weir that he had a community helping him out and encouraging him to to create this novel goes to show that you don't have to do this alone, right? You don't have to be creative alone. But it, I think it also proves that creativity is due to the collaboration on more of a social level. Like parts of those social skills really add to being creative. And this was something that I saw at the Lego education booth. They had all these different setups um, that were ranging from pre-K to high school of different ways to implement Lego and technology. And the upper level ones were definitely focused more on the coding and the problem solving. But some of those skills were implemented as well as social skills with some of the pre-K stuff. So you know, they were encouraging students to build little models of people with faces on them and they had emotions on them and they would read a book and then say, okay, can you build the character from the book and go ahead and pick a face that you think represents how they felt during this moment. And so then they, they build the character and they build it with friends and they collaborate on it. And it's that, it's that soft skill of empathy, of learning to read emotion, of working with other people to reach a goal I think all of that is so important to fostering creativity, and it was cool to see Lego really embracing that and making it part of their mission. Oh, yeah. Um, Lego has been involved in the education space for quite some time, and it has been used in the education space, and they have kind of a long history uh, working with educators uh, in, in this space. So definitely, I, I think that you know, that's, a, that's a great example. 
And some of the things that you had also highlighted, uh, you know, you talked about the creativity is not just creativity. There's this kind of social component. And I do feel like you're, you're really hitting on a lot of the, the 21st century skills. We, we talk about a lot in the education space, the creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, and communication skills. I mean, all of those things are part of what are really important to, to success today, especially in the industry, where the problems are much bigger. We need a lot more people involved. Uh, and we also need to co communicate those ideas to other people. We need to essentially ideas are competitive. And if you want your idea to succeed, sometimes the person who communicates it better is tends to be the one who, who gets their ideas implemented. So that all these skills are, are very, very important, especially like from a uh, entrepreneurial perspective. So yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you, you mentioned that, you know, the, the other thing that I'm starting, like I, I talked about the just in time uh, learning a little bit. Uh, one trend that we're seeing a lot is this uh, use of online video, you know, for just just in time learning. So people, you know, if you wanted to say, I don't know, go fix your car, for example, you just watch a video about this. And there's quite a few uh, individuals that I spoke to at the conference that were also talking about the the use of online video. Uh, so I, I did have a chance to, to meet with uh, Dr. Nathan Langrad, who's uh, the chief education officer for WeVideo. And he shared a little bit about how the this kind of notion of just-in-time learning, this, this notion of using even video for the creative process, like you mentioned kind of giving feedback, like people are using video for giving real-time feedback. Um, it, it's kind of something that we see as a, a trend in the industry as well. And I think part of it is just this used to be something very hard to do. You used to have a full production studio, but now, like with your phones, it's very easy to record uh, and share that with others. And in fact, with your phone, it's very easy to also look up a video and figure out how to do something just in time. And I think that's going to have a big impact on education because, I mean, a lot of things that we used to have to memorize now people are offloading some of that memory directly onto the digital devices. And there's also this notion of, well, after that, you know, people hopefully are getting into the, the hands-on component. Uh, and that's something that I did have a chance to uh, show a little bit. We're, we're exploring at Nui Tech this notion of YouTube-linked lessons. So you have a uh, online video, but from the research, we know that, you know, the videos... There, there's this issue of the fluency illusion. That is this feeling that you understand the material a lot better than you actually do. So without that hands-on component, without that, even the simple reflection, like just completing out some kind of simple exam, um, you're not going to remember a lot of the things that you watch. And so providing those types of hands-on activities in, it could be in a little station or it could be in a poll uh, or you, maybe you could set up a tabletop and you could have uh, a couple learners kind of doing an activity is really, really important for a deeper level of understanding, getting to that point of creating that we were talking about at the beginning. No, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's not only that idea of 
of addressing the fact that video isn't everything, right? I think video lessons are important and they're really revolutionizing the way we gain information, but just watching the video isn't quite enough. Um, And I I think that's important to address, but then also showing, okay, so then what else should I do? And that idea of taking what you learn on the video and immediately implementing it in a way that is going to help you retain the information will not only just make the the education more efficient, but I think it'll actually bolster the idea of getting students to go on YouTube and look up their own lessons. I know for me, like video editing, when I was first getting into it, that's how I learned. I hopped on YouTube and looked up Premiere uh, effects tutorial. How do how do I make this transition happen? And I was just personally motivated to find that out. And so then I did it and now I know how to do it. But, you know, for a lot of students, they don't they might not have that initial drive uh, or they might not know how to implement that um, learning directly. And so teaching that and showing them, yeah, definitely get on YouTube, learn, but here's how you can implement it. Here has, here's how you can retain that information, I think will actually help make video learning way more ubiquitous and something that people will seek out more effectively in the future on their own. Yeah, absolutely. Like we, I should have mentioned this earlier, but in terms of motivating uh, online video, I mean, don't really need to these days. Uh, Even YouTube themselves, I remember attending the VidCon conference uh, in Anaheim, the big YouTuber conference. And one of the things that they said was that uh, they get a half million views of educational videos every single day. And it's the third most popular reason why people go to YouTube at all to learn. And so they know that this is a big trend. They, a lot of people are, are doing their learning. They're doing research about products. They're doing a lot of the just-in-time learning using online video. But they also recognize that just watching the videos or, say, binging on the videos isn't really going to result in a really great understanding of it. So there, there is a recognition that we do need more interactivity. And I, I do feel that the, the multi-touch interface, especially the, the one where you just use your fingers and you can interact, say, directly on your phones, is going to be really powerful because it's going to allow students to maybe answer some questions or do some activities that right there you know, on their devices. And that will give them that opportunity to, to do practical things without necessarily having all the equipment there like you might not have all the equipment you need in order to do the activity but you could do a simulation of that activity directly on a mobile device very easily right right yeah no i i love that even the people that are hosting the platform for this kind of video content are realizing that you know there needs to be implementation for the skills being learned and i think it'll benefit everyone in in every kind of way so I think the last thing I wanted to touch on, and this is probably something you've seen, you've been deep in the ed tech space for a long time, is the push for gamifying learning. Um, I don't think this is a particularly new concept, but I think that there are new ways to implement it, especially with emerging technologies uh, like AI, and um, especially now that coding and computer science are becoming so ubiquitous and such a skill that 
that is needed. I mean, people need coders. People need people to get into computer science. And so I saw a lot of booths at ISTE that were gamifying the coding process and making it easier to understand the basic language of coding before getting into the grammatical, okay, where do I put the equals in the space and and how do I actually make this coding process work? It was about getting the brain in the right mindset. And yeah, so what what have you seen at ISTE um, that has really exemplified that gamifying of learning? Mm. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you, you talked a little bit about the coding side, and I definitely see that as a trend. Um, there, there's a ton of visual programming tools that use essentially something similar to Google Blockly um, that allows people to, to build little statements together. Um, and, and that's certainly something that is, is we see that uh, we've seen that for a few years. Um, also, in terms of maker spaces, I mean, there's still quite a bit in terms of building electronic kits. Um, PyTop was really, really big. I remember seeing that uh, just low cost laptops where you can just do some prototyping, like some hardware hacking uh, was also you know quite substantial. And I'd say that the. Uh, in in terms of the uh, yeah, just in terms of like furthering on the gamification side, one of the the things that we were starting to notice is this. There's kind of a couple different approaches. I've seen some like the Classcraft. Classcraft uses like actual characters, like actual games, and so they're they're literally like professionally dra- drafted characters that you play, and it is like you get points for certain good behaviors, and you can collect points, and then you can you can you build this whole theme. But I also felt that you know on the flip side, like where I'm thinking about the original Lego blocks, where it was never anything good, it was never anything professional. Um, so you just build something; it would it would be extremely ugly, but it would be yours. It would be something that you did on your own. And I feel that, you know, really when it comes to gamification, there's there's two approaches. One is like really professionally done content. And then there's the the unprofessional, the, you know, just creating an environment for play. And I really am encouraged about the types of games that involve, like it's it's not so much that Minecraft is the most amazing graphic subsystem out there, but it allows you to create something that you're proud of that you want to share with other people. And who knows, maybe you do create something that is just incredibly amazing that you want to share with others. And I felt like those types of games to me where you have a a large amount of creative expression, those are the types of uh, games that are of most uh, interest to, to, to myself because it's really in that creative potential that we see the see what can be done. We really start to motivate kids. Uh, we get that kind of that sense of the intrinsic motivation where they're learning how to play the game, how to use the system, but they're also learning the the content of the lesson or the content of the curriculum at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So does that give you some perspective? Yeah. No, totally. It, it, no, it's, it's that idea that they don't even feel like they're learning a lesson. It's just built into the basic gameplay. Uh, another booth I saw... It's actually from uh, Canada, I believe, uh, or from from British Columbia, and it hasn't been translated completely into English yet, Um, but it's called uh, Boreal Games, and what they do is it's these little pixelated people that you plug in 
um, you know, what, what they can wear, what their environment looks like. But the whole goal is that you set up little story blocks. And so your character moves between characters and moves between um, little homes and interacts with them and a story block pops up and that is the actual lesson. The student has to type in a correct sentence that, you know, they have to come up with a sentence and help frame the narrative of whatever story it is. So it might be something you could use for a historical lesson, um, you know, re- recounting something with the American Revolution per se. Uh, and so you move between houses and talk to characters and you have to type in Paul Revere at this point, you know, ran up the hill and said, the British are coming. Um, (laughs) And, you know, with that lesson, not only do you teach um, how to tell a good story, but also just the basic writing skills and making sure spelling is correct and capitalization. But they don't even feel like they're doing that. They're building out a fun game that they can play and share with their friends. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree. It's that complete integration of the lesson into the game where it doesn't even feel like a lesson it's just part of the game i think that is where gamifying learning really hits its peak yeah like i think you're you're hitting a very important point there about this notion of flow states within a game like uh chasenk mahali's uh notion of flow within a game is this notion that you can lose all sense of the outside environment you know you don't even need to like you, you're really kind of really immersed in the game environment. You're suspending disbelief. You're kind of in a level of kind of just the right amount of challenge and the amount of uh, like I I feel that that is the kind of thing that we're we're really looking for when it comes to gamification in learning. Uh, it's not so much just the novelty of a interesting uh, like set of graphics that you can or an interesting environment. But it's also this notion of, well, now I'm, I'm trying to tell a story and now, you know, I'm connecting all the pieces together and I'm, I'm going against the, the maximum level of skill that I have. You know, I'm doing the, the best that I can and I'm constantly being challenged with new things. I think that's really the, the key for, for gamification. It's just creating a game where they're just so immersed in it. They're really being challenged by the, the type of content that's being presented. And, you know, this is something that we, uh, we try a lot to do. Like, I, one thing that I've learned is that, um, and this is something new, like I just learned from Dr. Steve McGriff, that there's this kind of maximum limit for videos, uh, where you start to lose information. So he told me that it was actually around 90 seconds. So you can watch about 90 seconds of video. And then after that, you're just going to start losing stuff. So they do 90 seconds, and then some activity. And so with the so one thing that we've done inside our uh, inside the the lessons we call them the lessons app in Snowflake MultiTeach is we made it so that you could take a YouTube video and instead of watching the whole video you could specify like the start and the end point of that video and then you could then very easily have the instructions and the activity afterwards so they watch the video tells you what you're supposed to do and then you do the activity and then you watch an, maybe another 90 second clip so instead of watching like a whole 10 minute video and this is more just due to the nature of youtube like youtube is kind of a, a link watch time algorithm uh, focused so it's all focused on and many of the videos are 10 minutes in links they have like little kind of subscribe to my channel at the beginning and they have a little ad you know somewhere mixed between so you can kind of cut just to the, the part that you think is really really critical and then you can use that as part of uh, a lesson activity. 
yeah, that's that's really interesting. The fact that people are starting to pay attention to attention span. <laughs> I feel like like that I, that's so important with video. It's so easy to tune out after a little bit, or you know, you don't really think about how much information did I just retain when you finish watching an entertaining you know, fifteen minute vlog or you know a little five minute animation you don't really think about what you just retained but when you're watching a video for the content for the learning process that's so important to structure it around how much information is my learner going to actually retain before they're just staring at a screen and you know basically think something's going in one ear and out the other so yeah, that I I love that. I love how everything is starting to intersect. You know, video lessons, gamifying, enabling creativity. It's it's really cool to see emerging technology really inspire people to address some of the old challenges like how do you engage students? How do you make education more meaningful? But also some of the new challenges that come with the technology. I mean, we we didn't have these challenges before video lessons existed. You know, before it was this easy to do a video lesson. Now it's a new challenge. How do we make sure that students are gaining the correct amount of information and they're retaining it? Um, So it's just exciting to see that the ed tech space continues to innovate no matter what comes its way. Yeah, I see the, I like the idea of those different sections coming together because I I do see like video-based learning and flow states coming together where we we get to a point where you maybe watch sections of videos, do activities, then you move on to the next section. And it kind of creates this flow state where you're constantly being challenged. And if you do well on those questions, maybe you move on to, to other sections as well. So there's this kind of constant progression. I feel like that's very similar to what people are trying to achieve in a video game as well, trying to achieve this constant level of uh, increased increased skill, followed by this constant growth in the in your learning and, and the skill development. So, I yeah, I, I really like the, the idea of that trend, and I hope we'll see a lot more of this in the future. Absolutely. Well... Dr. Edward, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and you know, giving us this recap of ISTE. It was a wonderful week for me. You know, the, the few days I was there, I was only there Monday and Tuesday, but in that limited time, I, I really absorbed so much critical information for the EdTech space. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on and help give our audience a little bit of a recap. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Absolutely. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's podcast. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. Till next time.